Do you know the vision of our church? It's four words. Your journey, our passion. Your journey, our passion. What does that mean? That means that whoever you are, whatever your past, whatever your present, the vision of our church is to create a safe place where we will walk alongside of you to be a healing agent, to be a place where you encounter Jesus, and ultimately our mission out of our vision, your journey, our passion, is to influence you to become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, everything we do, we, we just want to point people to Jesus. But I feel like this is a moment where I just ought to say that, your journey, our passion. And um, there is nothing you're going through that you cannot receive Christ's healing and redemption. Welcome to week three of Living the Blessed Life. This is a series walking through the Beatitudes. The larger series is Sermon on the Mount, which we will be in for a number of months. I want to encourage you to read through Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, because we're going to be there for a number of months. Today is about this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does that mean? What does meek mean? Meek sounds a lot like weak, and we don't like that. What's your idea of a great leader? One of the most popular television shows for a number of years was a show called West Wing. You ever heard of that show? And it's about President Jed Bartlett. And he's got a staff around him like C.J. Craig and Sam Seaborn and Toby Ziegler and Josh Lineman. And it's just a show about power and functioning in the West Wing. Toward the end of the series, Jed Bartlett has almost completed his full eight-year term, two terms as president of four years, and the Democratic Party is looking for um, their new candidate. And many people think that they have found their candidate, but Toby Ziegler, the communications director, he's not so sure because, because Toby has a very specific idea of the kind of person who should be president. So I want to show you a video clip and go ahead and run it and see if you can pick out a very specific I've word. I've given a lot of thought to the heartwarming insight you shared with me about how the president has decided that Santos is a loser, and I think you're full of it. Eight packets of Splenda, you can wrestle up a bagel? This isn't about the president who doesn't think Santos can win. It's about you don't think he can win. That's true, I don't. Because it will kill you to see me do this and succeed. You're not wired for such an event. Your entire neurological infrastructure would fritz out. You really think I brewed up some sort of Freudian fratricidal mania built around your success? 
You don't think I have anything other than that against the Democratic nominee for president? Name something else, please. He's not presidential material. Why? Why? Because he left. He left Congress. He left Washington to go home and do small, important work. You had to haul him by the hair out of the family bed. Did you never stop to wonder if that was a good choice? He stepped up when presented with the opportunity. Man, and that job shouldn't have to be presented with anything. It's for someone who grabs it and holds on to it. For someone who, who, who thinks the gods have conspired to bring him to this place, that destiny demands of him this service. You don't have that kind of drive, that hubris? How in are you going to make the kind of decisions that stump every other person in this country? Are you going to hold that kind of power in your hands? You don't know he's not that man. You don't know that he is. Is he? Look me in the eye and tell me that you know. Without a shadow of a doubt, you know. That's why the other guy wins. I think most of us would think that somebody who should be president should be charismatic and powerful. And he used a word, Toby used a word called hubris. That's the key in that whole video clip. Hubris is excessive confidence. A sense of, I can do it better than anybody else. And Toby's idea of the next president is, we need that kind of woman or that kind of man because that's the kind of leader that inspires awe. In essence, Toby is talking about a cultural mindset of who is the most successful person. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people thought the same thing that Toby thought. The Jewish people were enslaved more or less by the Roman government. They had a certain amount of freedom, but the Roman government was really the one in charge. And if Jews got out of place, then the Roman army was right there. And the Jewish idea of a Messiah was that a Messiah would be presidential. The Messiah would be this charismatic, politically suave, powerful individual that could have a great speech and bring people along and he would throw off the Roman government and he would actually stand up to them and defeat them and kick them out of Israel. And all the Jewish people would say, Israel 2.0 has been restored and the kingdom of God will have come. They were looking for another David figure. That was their idea of who Messiah should be. So when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, you could hear the murmur in the crowd. Did he say meek? What is meek anyway? Meek sounds a lot like weak. I'm not interested in being meek. But remember, the Beatitudes are counterintuitive. They are countercultural. The world says, this is what success looks like. Jesus says, no, 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 I can point you to a deeper and better success over here. And so we get to this idea now of what exactly is the meek person. 
So what does it mean to be meek? Well, the Greek word is pros, P-R-A-U-S. And interestingly, there's different dimensions to this word. The most fundamental dimension is it was originally referred to by domesticated animals, by animals that had been domesticated. That's exactly what it referred to. The meek was an animal who had been domesticated. So our daughter, Bethany, and her family recently got a new puppy, and they named this puppy Miss Maple. (laughs) Adorable, right? And over the last several weeks, they've been domesticating this puppy, which really means that they hung a bell on the door, and whenever Miss Maple wants to go outside and do her business, they're trying to teach her, which is hilarious, right? They're trying to teach. Now, now Miss Maple, they're talking to Miss Maple. You come, ring the bell, ring the bell. And, my, and my, my daughter's like, ring the bell. And then she opens the door trying to teach Miss Maple, that's what you do when you want to go outside. What I think is Miss Maple has domesticated them. <laughs> because whenever she wants to go outside, she just goes and just nudges with her nose the bell. And then my daughter standing out in the cold just... Right? And this dog is like, just having a good time. Miss Maple, come on back in. Come on back in. Right? And the dog's like looking up like, what? I rang the bell. Eight, 10, 15, 20 times a day. You know what I'm saying? Who's been domesticated? But that's what meek means. It's the idea of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be, here's a synonym to meek, always to be gentle toward everyone. So another dimension of meekness is where we get the word gentleman and gentlewoman. It refers to people who have been taught the social graces to be polite and well-mannered. But there is still another dimension to this idea of meekness, and it refers to someone who is self-aware. Do you know people who are not self-aware? Everybody sees them in a different light than what they see themselves. But the self-aware person has learned to embrace both their strengths and weaknesses, and they are comfortable in their own skin. They see who they are. They accept their personality. They don't want to be five inches taller. They don't want to be 30 pounds less or more. They've just come to a place of being comfortable in their own skin. They know who they are, and they've decided that they're going to try to be the best version of themselves, but they're comfortable. But there's one last dimension to meekness that is very, very important. And it has to do with anger. Meekness doesn't have anything to do with temperament or personality. Meek people are not naturally laid back or they're naturally passive or weak or non-assertive. Meekness, according to Aristotle 
is controlled energy. Aristotle defined meekness as balanced anger. Listen to this. It's the person who is angry at the right time, at the right place, with the right people, and is never angry at the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong situation. Meekness is the ability to hold on to anger and express it appropriately. It's Jesus. Listen. When Jesus has this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery naked before him, he looks at this woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A very gentle act. But meekness is also Jesus creating a whip, going into the temple and chasing out the money changers. It's balanced anger. It's knowing when to be angry and when not to be angry and having the self-awareness to express it appropriately. That is meekness. Being under control by the Spirit. So is there an example in the Bible of a meek person? Yes, there is. The greatest example of meekness in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses was not always meek. Though born in slavery by Jewish parents, God sovereignly worked in his life. You remember the story about this little basket being floated in the Nile and Moses is picked up providentially by Pharaoh's daughter and he's brought into the palace and Moses is raised as a prince of Egypt. He has the best education. He's he's being shaped to be a leader of people and Moses has a very bright future ahead of him. Interestingly, Moses' identity is never hidden from him. It's not like Pharaoh's daughter moved him away a thousand miles away and never let him be around his own people. There seems to be this sense in which there was an open conversation and Moses always knew that though he was raised as an Egyptian, he was an Israelite. And it's not hard to understand that one day when Moses is laying in bed in the palace, it dawns on him, he was made for such a time as this. He's got the skill, he's got the education, he's got the intellect, he's got the influence, he's got the looks, he's Charlton Heston! I mean, wow, he's got it all. And he thinks to himself, this is my destiny to be the deliverer, to be the savior of my people. But one day he goes out among his people. Now the Bible doesn't give any explanation of why he did this, but you kind of, you know, this is me, right? I'm just thinking maybe he's going out and it's a fact-finding tour. Maybe he's 
developing important connections and relationships among the Jewish people. Maybe he's just out there saying, hey, I'm one of you. Maybe it's kind of a quiet campaign. Can I get to know all the right people so that when my time comes, you'll follow me. But instead he finds an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. And Moses has not learned to control his anger. And in a violent rage, he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And he doesn't bury him in the sand very well. He's probably got a toe sticking up someplace. Because it's discovered that Moses killed the Egyptian. And now he has to run out of Egypt. And he spends the next 40 years in a desert. He's blown it. His dream is dead of being the deliverer of Israel. But it's not dead with God. You know why? Because for the next 40 years, God is taking Moses through the Desert Wilderness University and teaching him what it means to be a true leader. And he is making Moses into a meek man, one who has balanced anger, one who is able to be angry at the right time with the right people over the right situation and never angry at the wrong people at the wrong time over the wrong situation. He's very imperfect, but he's learning. But that now brings us to Numbers chapter 12. Moses has gone back at 80 years old, right? He was 40 years old when he ran away from Egypt. He spent 40 years in the desert. God calls him through a burning bush. He goes back and there's a whole story of how God uses him to deliver the Israelites. And now he's delivered the Israelites and Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And his wife dies. Zipporah. As if Moses doesn't have enough problems, his wife dies. I don't know how the man has time, but he finds love again. And he marries a woman from the land of Cush. Verses 1 through 3 of Numbers 12. While they were in Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, criticized Moses because he married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. And in parenthesis, it says this. Now Moses was very meek. That's the original Hebrew word, meek. It's translated in the New Living Translation as humble, but it's the same concept. Now Moses was very meek, more meek than any other person on earth. So Miriam and Aaron, they've just stabbed Moses in the back. And it's personal. 
because he married a Cushite woman. Any of you uh, ancient historians, where's the land of Cush? Ethiopia. He married a black woman. And that's why Miriam and Aaron rose up against him. What do you think you're doing marrying a black woman? She's not one of us. And God comes down and says to Miriam and Aaron and Moses, stand before me. And they're all standing there like this. And basically, God says to Miriam, so you think lighter skin is better than darker skin. I'm going to make you really light-skinned. And suddenly, Miriam is leprous. White, really white from top to bottom. It's a little joke that God is doing. Oh, you think lighter's better. I'm going to make you really white. She realizes she's completely leprous. And she turns to Moses and cries out in mercy. And Moses prays for her and says, oh God, please heal her. And the leprosy is gone. Now, that's actually not the main point of the story, in my opinion. The main point of the story is what's in parenthesis. Now, Moses was more meek than any person on the face of the earth. So what is Moses doing during this moment of time where God is speaking to Miriam and Aaron? He's doing nothing. He's present, he's engaged, he's listening, but he's not doing anything because Moses has learned to trust God to fight his battles. And by this stage in his life, he's the meekest man on earth. He's learned controlled energy. I see four characteristics of meekness in Moses that I think you and I can apply to our lives. And I want to encourage you, just a one to ten. You know what I mean? One is, I have none of this. Ten is, no, I think I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good in this area. So here's the four characteristics. Number one, meek people don't need to defend themselves. There will be times when you're misunderstood, where people will say, bad things against you, people will think bad things against you, people will assume that you've done something that you haven't done or you've said something that you haven't said, people will twist your words and make you look worse than what you really are. You're in good company because that happened to Moses and Jesus and pretty much everybody else that God used in the Old and the New Testament. Meek people are not defensive. They are not easily offended. When criticized, meek people don't fall apart. 
because they know who they are at their best and their worst. So the question that we ought to be asking ourselves is, are you a defensive person? When somebody pushes against you, do you like rise up to defend yourself? That's the opposite of meekness. Number two, meek people do not need to assert their rights and privileges. They do not demand recognition. Moses' leadership is on the line. What's really going on here, you know, in, in, in Numbers um, verse one, um, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? There's a coup attempt going on here. Miriam and Aaron are trying to wrestle the leadership of Israel away from Moses because they didn't like his choice of a wife and they, say, they were like, hey, we, we want to have our time in the light now. What does Moses do? Nothing. Because he's not seeking his rights and privileges. If, if he was a leader in the worldly sense, I mean, he'd be all over them. He'd be trying to create these political alliances to make sure that he's holding on to the power. He doesn't. Because he's learned to rest in God's sovereignty. God gave me this position. If God wants to take it away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Number three. Meek people do not love injustice, but they handle it with grace when it does come to them. Moses was treated unjustly. Moses' only crime was finding love again in the arms of another woman. But notice he didn't slap back. He took the high road. Number four, meek people don't lapse into self-pity, a poor me attitude. Why are they treating me this way after all I've done for them? Because they have learned to trust God to guide their lives and know that even the challenges that they face are used by God ultimately for their good. This was another character development moment for, for Moses. He wasn't happy about it. He knew he was being treated unjustly but he didn't take a microphone and go whining all around everybody else who would listen saying, can you believe how they're treating me? This is terrible. After all I've done for them, I pulled them out of slavery for crying out loud. I missed one and I just realized it as I was telling the story of Miriam and Aaron and their disobedience. Here's the fifth characteristic of meek people. They give back better than what they got. They love their enemies. I mean, I got to tell you, if I'm Moses and Miriam is white with leprosy, <laughs> I'm doing everything to hold it together because I see the joke. And everything in me would be like, yeah, sure, I'll pray for you next month. 
Yeah, you, you just lie in your own mess there for a while. You know what I'm saying? You're white with leprosy? Hang out there for like 30 days with leprosy. See how you feel about it. Because I'm not inviting you over to dinner with my Cushite wife until you go to her and apologize. I don't see any of that in Moses. In fact, what I see is a very compassionate man who looks at his sister and says, you did me wrong, and I don't like this, but I'm not going to hold it against you because I've learned to be angry at the right time, at the right people, for the right circumstances, and I've learned to hold my anger at the wrong people at the wrong time, the wrong circumstances. I've mastered myself. And so Moses just prays this very simple prayer. Oh God, please heal her. You know why? Because Moses knows what he's capable of apart from the Lord. He killed an Egyptian. I mentioned two weeks ago that um, one of the ways that you know that you're growing as a Christian is to realize that the same nature that made other people hurt you is the same nature that lives inside of you. And it's really pride that says, I would never do that to them like they did to me. Really? Because the same nature that lives inside of them is the same nature that lives inside of you and me. And so there's a sense of compassion for Moses that says, you did me wrong, but I'm not going to hold it against you because I know what it's like to be on the wrong side because I've been there. So I'm releasing you and I'm forgiving you. Number three, what is the blessing for those who are meek? Well, Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. Well, what does it mean to inherit the earth? Because the meek are not self-promoting and they don't assert their rights and privileges, you would think that they would end up with very little in this life. When Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth, he's referring something much deeper and much better, just like all the other Beatitudes. The meek person has learned the secret of being content and happy without having to have more or owning anything. It's the same idea from 2 Corinthians 6.11. The Apostle Paul says, we own nothing, yet we possess everything. Isn't it true that a part of the American ethos is that when we want to enjoy something, we think we have to buy it? Oh, I love the shore. So you know what we do? We put it. One day I'd like to own a house that's a shore. I'm not saying this wrong with that, but there's something inside of us that says, if I like something a lot, I want to buy it. Oh, I'll be so much happier if I have a house in the mountains. Oh, I'll be so much happier if I have a $800,000 home. Oh, I'll be so much happier if I am able to buy this kind of car. And so we just have this American mindset that happiness equals possessions. Do you not know that the most discontented people in the world are people who are chasing after possessions? You know who John D. Rockefeller is? Right? At his time, the richest man in the world, he's like the Elon Musk, right? 
He was once asked, how much does it take to be happy? His answer, just a little bit more. That's the world's mindset, just a little bit more. You know what Jesus is saying? Meek people have learned that they don't have to own anything in order to be happy and satisfied. Listen to this, because God's already given it to them. The things that really matter in life, God's already given you. So let me give you just a little short list. God's already given you a sunrise. God's already given you a walk in the park, being at the beach, being in the mountains. You're free to travel to different parts of the world. God wants to give you, if you don't have it, enjoying healthy, satisfying relationships. God wants to give you the joy of knowing that you're loved by him and that you have a meaningful relationship with him. God wants you to enjoy watching a football game on a Saturday night before church on a big screen TV and being content with the fact that you're not at the game sitting in a box seat, right? But there are some people that they're just walking around discontented because they're always wanting a little bit more. And God is saying, no, no, the meek shall inherit the earth. You've already got everything in your life that really matters. You just don't see it because you're not meek. If, if you were domesticated, if you were to get underneath God's authority, you know what you discover? You have everything that you need. You should already be content. And there's nothing that the world can offer you that God can't offer you bigger and better. So I'd like to close with um, offering you a prayer, for disc a prayer for contentment. It's right up here on the speakers. And if this prayer is helpful to you, then I want to encourage you to pray it this week. It's pure scripture. Here's the prayer. Lord, make these words from the Apostle Paul my own. Here it is. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I have learned the secret of being content. Would you stand, please? The meek will inherit the earth. What is meek? Getting underneath God's authority, being domesticated, learning balanced energy. You need to know that if you know Jesus Christ, as your personal savior, you already have meekness and seed form inside of you. You already have it. Your job is to just cooperate with the Holy Spirit to let it grow. And God will use all kinds of things to grow meekness 
in you. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, today, make us meek so that we would experience true contentment with the things that we have, with the possessions that we own. Grow meekness inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.